Hello and welcome to this Endo Life. I'm Jessica Duffin. I'm an Endo Warrior and Endo Health Coach, and this podcast is all about living and thriving with endometriosis. As always, this podcast is here for educational purposes only. Please consult your medical practitioner before making any nutritional changes or bringing in any supplements. Before we dive into today's episode, I want to give a shout out to my lovely sponsors at BU. And I wanted to tell you about their new bath bombs, which are naturally made and contain beautiful essential oils. And their peppermint and eucalyptus essential oils um, bath bomb is doing so well right now with endometriosis community. They're getting loads of feedback about it. And, you know, if you love the patches themselves you're going to love the bath bombs because essentially it's (laughs) the patch in a bath bomb um so you know if you're on your period or if you're in pain you could have a bath with some of the bath bombs or one of them i don't know you could have multiple if you want um and then yeah get out the bath maybe rub in some cbd balm and put your patch on top, which is um, what a lot of people are feeding back that they're doing. So um, I would love to do that, but um, I don't have a bath, so I can't. But if you have a bath, um, then, you know, I think these new bath bombs could be a lovely way to help alleviate some of your pain. So if you'd like to check them out, you can go to BU which is buonline.co.uk and you can also order them from anywhere in the world on cultbeauty.co.uk and they deliver worldwide. So before we dive into today's episode, I wanted to give a shout out to the lovely girls at Semaine. They are two sisters with endometriosis. They've been on the show before and they founded Semaine, which is a supplement company for people with periods to originally, their first supplement was to aid with PMS and period pain. And I know that it is a lifesaver for so many people with endometriosis and painful periods. I absolutely love that supplement. It's really helped me when I've had to kind of follow protocols for SIBO or, you know, I've had a stressful time and I've been worried about my period. I've been able to avoid a flare with that supplement and they've always been so kind and um, kindly sent me sent me them when I when I've needed them. And now they've come out with a new supplement called the Daily, and it is a hormone balancing supplement, which is designed to help with healthy skin, stable mood, fewer cravings in your luteal phase, blood sugar balance. And they recently gifted it to me. Honestly, I said this to my client the other day. My blood sugar levels have never felt so stable as they did when I was taking that day, daily supplement. As you guys know, I I work very hard to stabilize my blood sugar levels because that will keep inflammation down and it also ensures that you have healthy balanced hormones. It's, it's really, really key. And I have a history of having really unstable blood sugar. Originally growing up, it was because of my eating disorder. But then in later years, it was much more down to firstly following a vegan diet when I didn't understand how to build my plate, a healthy blood sugar balancing plate. And secondly, because of my microbiome and my microbiome because of SIBO is built to actually extract more glucose from my food and cause blood sugar instability. This is actually a really key piece 
of blood sugar. If your blood sugar is resisting all of the strategies you're trying, that is a massive clue that your microbiome is affecting the way that your blood sugar is is being controlled in your body. So we need to work on that, work on your gut. And mine has improved mine has improved massively, but I still react much more um erratically than someone else would to blood sugar fluctuations. And I couldn't believe the difference. It was like I had a whole month of like stable blood sugar. It was incredible. And as a result, I had much more of a healthier cycle. I felt a lot more satisfied. I had less food cravings. I just felt a lot more stable in energy. So I'm a really big fan of this. And as I said, blood sugar is a huge piece to managing your hormones, hence why blood sugar is such a big part of their their supplement. So the girls have kindly given me a discount code for you guys. It will get you 20% off your first um, order, whether that's the daily or the PMS and period support capsules. And the code is ENDOLIFE, one word, all caps. So E-N-D-O-L-I-F-E. And that code is valid for the next six months, I believe. So you can use it at any time. Um, So let me know how you get on with them. I'd love to hear if you find them as amazing as I did. And I hope that they bring you a happier and healthier cycle and period. Today, Dr. Stephanie Harrod is joining me on the podcast. And Stephanie is a doctor of physical therapy specializing in women's health, in particular endometriosis. In her patients, she actually often sees endo alongside SIBO and and interstitial cystitis, which we all know we see all the time, but also hypermobility, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, and POPs. And Stephanie saw these patterns in so many patients that she actually began developing protocols to support people with endo, not just with their pelvic health and their pelvic pain, but with all of these co-conditions that often have an impact on endo and overall health. And she realized that it wasn't about just treating the endo. She needed to kind of treat the full person, the full body to be able to get the best results. In today's episode, Stephanie and I are talking about her personalized approach for managing POTS and dysautonomia with endo and how these strategies differ from typical POTS treatment to better support endometriosis. In this episode, we discuss how managing POTS with endo differs from managing POTS alone and why how to effectively use salt for POTS and dysautonomia management, the types of exercises that are better suited for POTS and how we can adapt them for endo. And this was super eye-opening for me. And finally, the lifestyle modifications and tools we can use to manage the day-to-day symptoms of POTS. Hi, Stephanie. Thank you so much for being here today. I'm really excited to talk about this topic with you. Yeah, thanks, Jessica, so much for having me. I'm looking forward to it. So let's start with your, you know, the work that you do, who you are, um, and the type of people that you support. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I am a pelvic floor physical therapist. I live in Washington State in the U.S. Um, I specialize in pelvic pain specifically. So we have um, an endometriosis surgeon who work, we work very closely with. So we have to see a lot of. Um, Patients with endometriosis, interstitial cystitis. Um, I also see patients during pregnancy, postpartum, 
athletes with any sort of pelvic pain um, or pelvic problem. Um, yeah, so that's that's what I'm currently doing. And then um, I'm also currently working on my women's health coaching certification through the Integrative Women's Health Institute. So I'm looking forward to adding that to my practice next year. Yeah, absolutely. It's an amazing course. So we've obviously been been talking and you reached out to me because you see, like I do, a lot of crossover with endometriosis and dysautonomia or POTS um, and Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, MCAS. There's also like SIBO and interstitial cystitis thrown in there normally. So um, I, I assume, like, could you yeah, I want to kind of dive into POTS today with you as, as we discussed, but I'd love to hear like your experience of seeing these conditions overlapping with each other. Definitely. And I think that's really what spurred me to, to dive in more with the women's health coaching and the integrative women's health Institute, because there is so much overlap with these conditions. I'm just seeing so much crossover and such complexity um, of conditions that it really takes a holistic approach to manage these conditions, often referring to several other physicians or getting referrals from various types of physicians. Um, so it is, it's just a, it's, it's, um, it's a complex world. And we often see, uh, when I first started working with patients with endometriosis, I saw all of these other conditions with hypermobility and um, difficulty regulating heart rate, blood pressure, dizziness, and I just was, you know, at a loss of how to manage all of them. So spent a lot of time diving into the research, finding all of the connections and figuring out how to how to support people the best holistically um, in every aspect of their life, not just in, you know, just their pelvic pain. Uh, It just was impossible to treat people from specifically a musculoskeletal pelvic health perspective. It just was impossible. Yeah. And I'm, I'm so glad that you're doing this and you're bringing it up because I, you know, it's, I, I talk about it a lot and I worry that some of my listeners are just like, Jesus Christ, she's talking about POTS again. I was just talking about Ellis <laughs> syndrome again or MCAS or SIBO. But it's like, no, 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 we are seeing this so much. Like 99% of the people who come to me have these conditions. And, yeah. you know, I wasn't really taught about this in the beginning when I was specializing in endometriosis. It was something that you know, I started having symptoms of, and I started seeing these symptoms in my clients. And I was like, what the heck, what's going on here? You know? So then I started looking into the research and well, both the, you know, the, the literature, but also like clinically what people are seeing clinically. And I spoke to some other practitioners and everyone was like, yeah, (laughs) we see this all the time. Mm -hmm. And this is what we know so far. But I think that in the future, we're going to have a lot more research linking these together. Um, because yeah. there's just there's so much more going on here, I think, than we realize. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. A, a couple of just interesting stories on that point. One, I you know was introduced to POTS in like the final semester of physical therapy school, where we were in this you know differential diagnosis course, and we had to spend weeks studying this person in this complex case that 
nobody had anything, you know, it was just introduced in this really nebulous, like, you will never see this. This is kind of a, a weird off the wall diagnosis. Um, and we had to, you know, kind of figure out what was going on. Um, and then I started practicing and seeing, you know, patients and I was like, oh my goodness. Like, oh, it's like, oh, this is that, this is POTS. This is what I did in that weird class and then I was like oh wait this person has that too so so that was um it was just interesting you know the diff- the contrast of how it was taught in school versus what I see clinically um I thought that that was an interesting you know dichotomy there and then um to just looking into the research so many of the articles are like are mentioning it um in a way that's like oh many patients also struggle female patients with painful periods mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. estrogen dominated gynecological disorders, like it, it, like endometriosis. And a lot of these um, studies are not directly said, yeah. like the word, the word is like skirted around. So I was like, Oh, that's so interesting. I hope in the future that we can get a more clear, more recognized link between the two. Yeah, absolutely. And I I don't have the the paper in front of me, but there was um one lecture I attended and it was something like is it something like 3 to 25% of um I think it might have been is it Ehlers-Danlos? It might have been Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Uh people with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome have endometriosis but then something like 80 percent of them have like pelvic pain and heavy menstrual bleeding and painful periods and you know all of that and then we know that there's this huge overlap between Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and POTS as well so it's like okay so how many of those people with endo and EDS also have POTS and you know I think in America your diagnosis time is 10 years for endometriosis I think in the UK it's 7.5 so totally right how many of those people that they're talking about in in the studies you've looked at are are actually people with endometriosis that's just not diagnosed and Mm -hmm. same for POTS how many people with endo are saying oh you know I get I get dizzy and I get um and it all gets worse around my period so it must be endo right because pots gets worse towards your period um I have blackouts I faint um I'm tired all of the time these classic pot sim- pot symptoms um but we're just like it's just lumped under endo because it's like oh well you know endo has weird symptoms it's quite far reaching it's just endo and you never learn how to manage it properly um but also POTS takes ages for diagnosis um I know there was a really great like article um where they were talking it was like a study on what you know diagnosis time and the treatment that people had had like in terms of um, their care, not the actual treatment. And, um, you know, nearly a huge amount being told that it was like a, a mental health condition, that it wasn't real, um, all of these different things. So there are probably so many people walking around with undiagnosed POTS right now, you know. Um, I've had my symptoms definitely like that I've been aware of since I was about 19. Um, and no one ever, ever mentioned POTS to me until recently. Until I looked yeah. into it and found a doctor who would, who knew about the connection. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So yeah, just being able to, having to, again, do the kind of research and that, that legwork yourself too, as a part of that. 
process of going through the treatment and everything. So yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a battle for sure. So how does managing like POTS with endo differ from managing POTS alone? Because obviously you were saying you have this kind of quite holistic approach um, and you're kind of looking at all of these conditions. So how, how does that man- differ from someone who's just got POTS um, and then someone else has got endo as well? Yeah, I think that, you know, like we were just talking about there, that link is so strong and the primarily the patients that I see with, um, with POTS come to me for endo. Um, but, and I think that the research is strong too, that many people with POTS have pain in some capacity. Um, so uh, not to dismiss that, you know, people who don't have endometriosis who have POTS may not have pain that they're co- trying to co-manage, but, um, just that, that part of, being able to manage an endo flare, you know, working around times of the month that may or may not work for getting aerobic activity in, um, and just the inactivity that comes along, um, oftentimes with patients with endometriosis because of flares and pain is just, it's hard to kind of manage that at the same time as recommending a lot of what's recommended for POTS, which is regular, daily consistent aerobic activity. It's just um, the the fluctuations with endometriosis are just so large and how people feel and what they're able to get done that that is a big component that I, you know, I'm working through with patients and finding modifications and things like that. Um, another big difference is core weakness and abdominal pain um, with endometriosis. Um, a lot of the kind of POTS protocols that I've looked at, um, you know, they have a lot of core strengthening exercises, but it's been really important that I kind of modify that and tailor that to my patients with endometriosis to take out things that may flare up symptoms of abdominal or pelvic pain or or make things worse. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And actually, I'm really interested to dive into the exercise piece Um when when we get to it because I've already got some questions around that about how you do it um so something that I wanted to start with uh we've touched upon it on the podcast a bit um but not not in detail is this you know eating more salt and drinking more water with pots or dysautonomia um because I think when people hear that it's a bit scary because you know doctors typically tell you to eat not much salt um, so why should we be kind of focusing on salt and drinking more water? Um, and what's kind of the best approach to that? Is it, I, I saw, I saw someone, um, talking about like they're eating a lot of Chinese takeaway cause it has a lot of salt in and I was like, mm, might not be the healthiest approach, but like <laughs> nice for Friday night. <laughs> yes. Oh, that is interesting. Yes. Um, oh, that's funny. Um, yeah. So this, the salt component comes from the sodium component comes from sodium helps us to pull blood, uh, pull water and pull fluid into our blood cells and to our blood um, vessels. So it helps with increasing blood pressure and it helps with increasing your overall blood volume, um, which is a problem with patients with POTS. They have this hypovolemia, which means not enough fluid um, to kind of get things back to their heart. Um, and then just the way that the um, autonomic nervous system is dysfunctioning at the time, you're not getting that 
good squeeze of the vein of the veins to get the blood back to your heart. So increasing your water in addition to increasing the sodium content, um, uh, in your system will help with that. So that, so, you know, most commonly sodium in some form is, um, is recommended. So most commonly table salt, which would be sodium chloride. Um, but some of the electrolyte mixes might have like a sodium carbonate or some other sodium salt. Um, so, so that's the standard um, recommendation. Um, I, you, we kind of were talking about, you know, potassium or other, mm -hmm. other electrolytes. Are those helpful? Um, I really like to recommend an electrolyte that has some potassium and some magnesium in it. Um, potassium and magnesium are really important for, um, muscle and nerve function. So I like to just get a more holistic boost in your system. Um, so I typically will go for something that has those as well, but as far as managing the volume component of pots, sodium is what's recommended. Um, and really uh, the research is, is quite high for, for pots, six to eight grams of sodium, um, and three to four liters of water, which for people in the U S is like a hundred ounces. Um, and that's, yeah, like you mentioned, that's like three to four times what's recommended for the average adult. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so um, that's much higher than a lot of people would would think. Um, and I think that, you know, this just goes back to a lot of the other research around health recommendations that is really studied and done around, you know, adult oftentimes white men and not, not well extracted to other populations in the community. So, um, so making sure that you kind of adjust that and work with your doctor to look at what's recommended for you. But that's kind of what a lot of the research says is six to eight grams of sodium a day, um, and three to four liters of water. Right. And I mean, that's a lot to put on your food. So that's why electrolytes and, um, you know, salt, you can get a lot of like salt sticks and uh, salt kind of capsules. I take potassium. Mm -hmm. um, I've run out. Absolutely. But they, they yeah. offer like a um, one for dysautonomia and POTS, um, which is quite good. And that's yeah. got a potassium blend. Because I do worry about like just Absolutely. taking like loads of salt and then not adding in a potassium. Like you're not, ha you're not having much of a balance there. Um, Absolutely. And, you know... <sighs> you end up like even just from a vanity perspective you can start looking quite bloated I was getting quite puffy eyes like you know mm -hmm. and I'm a, I'm a, I don't know this is still such a new area for me the dysautonomia piece but I can imagine that in causing an imbalance where the salt is the sodium is so high and your potassium is is quite low probably isn't great for health either um so I, I like Absolutely. that approach yeah, yeah, I like the electrolyte blends. I think that that's just a little bit more digestible. Um, you know, even getting you know a broth or something like that. I've had <clears throat> I've recommended patients who can't tolerate you know the electrolyte blends um, go for like a broth or you know some sort of you know other dietary. Um, way of getting in some sort of salt and then that broth you know has all the other vitamins and minerals that it comes with right too which is really nice like you mentioned just gets a little bit more well well balanced um 
Yeah, I mean, I've been, I've run out because I'm traveling at the moment. I've run out Mm -hmm. of the potassium and they don't ship it here um, to Sweden. So I've just been making like the most random like electrolyte blends and kind of adrenal cocktails. I've been like using celery juice and coconut water, although not a huge amount because I like to balance my blood sugar. And, you know, I add some salt in there. Um, I can't really add like uh, some people add vitamin C for the adrenaline support. I can't really add that because I have interstitial cystitis and citrus fruits hurt my bladder. But um, mm-hmm. I've actually found like, you know, the the potassium that's coming from the coconut water and, and the celery juice and the sodium that's coming from the celery juice and also the the um, the magne- magnesium and the <laughs> Himalayan salt that I add has been helpful. Like I have noticed a difference on the days I don't have it and the days that I do. Um, but I don't think I've quite found the right amount of salt that I need yet. Even when I was taking the potassium, like I still don't feel like I still get these dizzy spells, but, um, I mean, what do you think about that? Like making your own kind of electrolyte blends, like, is it enough? Like how many would you suggest people have? Yeah. I, yeah, I love that. I think that, yeah, trying to find it as from as natural of sources as possible is, is great. I think some of the, like you mentioned with blood sugar balance, some of the electrolytes that you'll just go pick up from the, the store, the electrolyte blends have a ton of sugar in them too. So, you know, making sure that you're looking for one that is low, low in sugar. Um, if you're going to go that route, just like the stick added to water route, um, you know, just making sure that that's, well balanced as well. And I think you're right in not offsetting a lot of your electrolyte levels with just the salt and making sure you're getting magnesium and potassium and all these other really important, um, electrolytes and vitamins and minerals are, are super important. Um, and, and celery juice also super calming to the nervous system, super calming to the gut, um, too, as well, while you're trying to get, um, you know, get all of that sodium in. Um, yeah, when I was looking at the research, it's quite high what they recommend. I haven't had patients have to get, you know, eight, 10, 12 grams of sodium. That just seems so excessive to me, but, um, I, I guess, you know, if you're able to work with a physician specifically for you or, um, kind of experiment in where your body finds that happy place um, and starting low and just gradually building um, is always, you know, typically a better approach than, you know, going full bore and trying to overload yourself um, and Chinese food and things like that too, that have other, other problems. You know, I've had patients be like, well, I took a shot of soy sauce every morning. And I was like, oh, that is intense, girl. Like that is some dedication. But um, again, you know, okay, what's the side effects of taking a shot of soy sauce every morning? You know, is there, you know, is there a better way that we might be able to do that? Um, you know, yeah, absolutely. for you. Okay. That's so interesting. I'm glad we talked about that because I feel like that I don't know that salt one is so throwaway like doctors are like just have more salt and what the what, what does yeah. that mean what does that yeah exactly what does that mean how do I do that in in practice so yeah and I think mixing it up like you're doing too is really helpful because like I said with the GI upset and all the other GI stuff that's going on with endo it can be really challenging to kind of get in you know the same thing every day or something that has a ton of sugar in it or mm. you know that may have other adverse effects on other comorbidities like you were talking about. So. 
Just a reminder that this episode is sponsored by BU. These natural patches last for 12 hours, so they bring you prolonged relief and can begin working on relaxing your muscles before the pain kicks in, so you're prepared even if your period comes during the middle of the day. Some people even find that wearing them a night before their period can really help soothe the inflammation in the area. To shop, just head to the link in my show notes. So um, I wanted to talk about the fatigue piece uh, now because, I mean, a lot of people with endometriosis do have this chronic fatigue and then um, people with POTS have chronic fatigue as well. And especially for endo, exercise can cause discomfort, especially if there's adhesions there. Um, And then with POTS, you know, it can cause accelerated heart rate and breathing difficulties. Um, I find that I can kind of, I do my exercise in like 10 minute like increments. So I'll do 10 minutes um, and then I'll go back to work and then I'll do 10 minutes, like, you know, two hours later or something. Um, And I'll break up, you know, an hour of exercise across the day. Um, So that works for me because if I do too much, like I it, my heart rate gets quite scary. Um, so I'm just interested, like that, that can obviously really discourage patients from moving, but the conditions both tend to get worse when you don't move. So I'm really interested in what you were talking about earlier. Like how do we adapt, um, our exercises? Like, why is it helpful, especially from a POTS perspective? Um, and, and how can we make them manageable when we're dealing with things like chronic pain and fatigue? Yeah, definitely. So, um, that is a, that is definitely a thing that is really challenging is getting in that recommended amount of exercise. And, um, so what's recommended is kind of low intensity aerobic activity is the primary thing that's recommended. Um, and getting that in, you know, three to five days a week is kind of the gold standard. Um, and why that, that, low sustained activity is recommended is it just helps to kind of regulate the blood pressure, regulate the heart rate a little bit. But with POTS, we want to start as low as possible and starting um, as horizontal as possible is what's recommended. So oftentimes I'll recommend my patients start swimming or recumbent biking and then progressing more towards upright so that you're not having that same effect of gravity on your body as you're trying to exercise. Um, and then it's really about keeping your heart rate pretty low. So that's a, a, a lower intensity of exercise. And we typically think about like, Oh, I'm going to go for out for a brisk walk or a jog or something like that. It's much more, um, low intensity than that. Um, and that should help with managing your, uh, heart rate levels and just keeping them sustained, um, over a period of time and then over time progressing that like over weeks and over months, not over, you know, days. So, um, so that's, that's kind of the recommend. I like how you're saying you break yours up into 10 minute bouts, anything that is sustained, um, you know, ideally working towards that 20 to 30 minutes to kind of get the more aerobic effects of that, Mm -hmm. um, is where we're going to start to see the benefits in the cardiovascular system and the cardiovascular response mechanism of it being able to respond a little bit quicker. Um, so, so yeah, that's kind of where I start with patients is, is making sure that they're 
they're doing that. And then either monitoring their symptoms, like you mentioned your heart rate um, or how you're feeling, um, either with a heart rate monitor or I really like the RPE scale um, is a scale that has been validated to um, match heart rate pretty well in the typical kind of population. Um, you know, it's more challenging to rate that with a, con- a condition like our, um, like POTS, but the RPE scale, the ratings of perceived exertion is going to keep you in that low to moderate intensity. Um, if you're kind of just going off of that. And I like that because that can change day to day, right? You know, the speed at which you're biking on a recumbent bike may change day to day based on your symptoms, but your goal is to keep that RPE within the same range. Um, Okay. And that's just based on your own awareness of your body. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like there's so much that um, I don't, I mean, I have a cardio uh, mobile, like heart rate tracker mainly because I thought I was having a heart attack and I was having loads of palpitations and we were trying to monitor them, but that's an ECG. So I need like a heart rate monitor because I actually don't have one of those. Um, So kind of if you can get a heart rate monitor i mean there are there are loads on the market um and kind of monitor what your heart rate's doing and how it's responding to different exercises kind of over time yeah absolutely yep and then working really to keep it in that low range so um on the rpe scale which i can send to you mm. too so you have a reference of that but it it would be like an 11 to 13 which you know, should theoretically correlate to like a 110 to like a 130 heart rate. So it's, um, it's a lower intensity heart rate that gets you up above your resting, but should stay sustained. And then you're checking you're like, okay, whoa, my heart rate is going way above this. Let me back off the intensity a little bit and, and slow down, maybe take a break and then wait till it comes back down and then try and sustain that. So your heart rate, so we're asking our body to kind of get to a range and stay there and then come back down and start to normalize that response pattern to exercise a little bit more over time. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, and then what you're saying is for people with POTS, cause I kind of break mine up, not just from a heart rate perspective, but blood sugar. So like, I, mm-hmm. I like to keep like moving throughout the day. So I'll kind of do 10 minutes of movement after I eat, you know, a meal. Um, I also go for a walk and stuff throughout the day as well. Um, but for example, I'll take like a 30 minute workout and I'll break it up into three. Um, but from a POTS perspective, it would be better to try and get it to a point where I can do 20 minutes in one go, because that's going to, um, improve like the heart, heart's kind of response to pumping blood. Correct. Yep. Yes. Yep. So working towards that sustained activity. Mm -hmm. So even if it's like you do, you know, your walk and it's a little bit slower for two minutes and then, you know, bring it up for 10 minutes, like you were, um, like you're doing and then bring it down back a little bit slower for two minutes, you know, working towards that 15 minute, um, mark is going to be better. Just, you know, if, even if you do like a warm up, a sustained 10 minutes and then a cool down, that's going to be that sustained time over time, building that towards 20 minutes of sustained effort is going to be more beneficial for training that aerobic system. Okay. Okay. That's so interesting. And then I think you mentioned in our, uh, in our discussions 
before the call that like building kind of muscle strength in like legs and arms is also going to help with like kind of getting that blood to the heart again. Um, so what, I mean, aerobic exercise doesn't typically always, you don't necessarily think about it as building strength. I kind of think of, you know, body weight exercises and weightlifting exercises as building strength. So what would, what do you recommend for that? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, that typically looks like, uh, a core and hip strengthening routine. So getting stronger in, you know, all of the muscles of the body, but also especially like the central muscles, at least that's what I focus on because I'm seeing the Ehlers, Danlos and the endo as well. And those central, those muscles that are close to your core. So your hips and your abdominal muscles get really weak over time. Um, just from being in postures that are not conducive to, to being strong there. So that's what I focus on a lot is the core and the hips. Um, but that may look very different, uh, than just going and doing a bunch of crunches or sit-ups or things like that. Um, because anytime we're crunching the abdomen or rounding through the abdomen, I really try and avoid that for patients with endometriosis, just because we're already in that position a lot. And it can increase the tension around the pelvic floor, increase the the tension in the abdominal wall. And we already find a lot of abdominal wall trigger points and a lot of tension in those areas. So I love to add in strengthening that may look like plank or a modified plank that, you know, you're open, you're long, um, but you're sustaining a nice, Uh, muscle contraction for 10 seconds, 20 seconds, something like that. Um, A bridge, something like where you're on your stomach and you're doing like a Superman lifting, Mm. squeezing through your glutes, extending through your abdomen, kind of working against that position that um, kind of keeps you in that rounded position a lot of the day. Okay. That's great. Do you have like, I mean, um, in the show notes, are there any exercise like websites, like videos or anything that you have that I can link to? Do you offer anything like that? Um, yeah, absolutely. So I have, um, yeah, this, the children's hospital of Philadelphia has a really good pot exercise program and it has like the aerobic even broken down, which is super helpful. Oh, it actually even has the RPE scale on there that they want you to use. And it's super nice. Um, And they have stretches and they have exercise on there. So yeah, you can definitely link to this. Um, The one thing that they say too on here is like, oh, do, you know, we ask you to perform, you know, abdominal crunches and things like that. And that's just one thing that I modify for my patients with that. But I just say, okay, we're going to do, you know, maybe make a a half plank from your knees or you're going to do a um, something different than like a straight sit up or crunch or anything like that. Um, but other than that, it's a great, um, it's a really, really great resource. So I will absolutely send that to you. Okay. That's awesome. Thank you. And I'm glad you said that. Cause I, I mean, I was like the, the sit up queen for most of my life. Um, <laughs> yes. but I've got like adhesions from my surgery and they have like had quite an impact on my bladder and things like that. So Um, I haven't been doing like crunches and stuff for about two years, but instead I'm doing a lot of like, um, 
I kind of I use like Melissa Wood's workouts. Have you are you familiar with Melissa Wood? Oh no, I'm not. So she does like a yoga kind of hybrid, um, and I found it was it's better for me because I would do previously like a lot of like kind of quite hardcore Pilates and weightlifting, and um, I have quite like low uh, cortisol levels. And obviously I didn't know at the time I had pots. So I was like getting really, really burnt out from them. So now I'm using like Melissa Woods and it's still like, I mean, it gets my heart rate up and I still feel it, but it just feels like less, it just is a lot less intense, but she does a lot of like planks and a lot of like the movements are still developing strength in the core because you're just having to hold that stability all the time in the moves and, uh, you know, you're doing a lot of like downward facing dog, but then moving into like plank and stuff. So it, it kind of is building that core strength without doing something as intense as a sit up. So I really like her stuff. Yeah, that's amazing. I love that. I love all of those yoga. Yeah, those uh, sustained, prolonged holds are are so beneficial. And I think absolutely, definitely the direc- the direction I go with patients with POTS and patients with endometriosis versus, you know, going to the gym, doing heavy weightlifting, um, things like that. It's just, yeah, it can just be a kind of wreak havoc on a, a system that's already really trying hard to, to regulate itself. So I, I love that approach. I imagine, I mean, I'm kind of throwing a spanner in the works here, but I imagine that's a bit more tricky for people with hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome because they're they're told to weightlift, right? They're told to build stability in the joints with weights, from my understanding. Mm-hmm. Um, and but I I do I take a very similar approach as far as building the core strength um, and building the center of their bodies up okay. really um, stable. Um, you know we talk a lot about like central stability or like your central stability system being a really important system to have super strong in order to support your you know, distal or farther away from you joints. Um, and so, yeah, I still take a similar approach with patients with um, Ehlers-Danlos just because oftentimes it's really easy when you're hypermobile like that to compensate with different parts of your joints or, mm. you know, you have all these like loosey-goosey ligaments that can kind of bend in certain ways. And so when you add load to that system, like if you're doing, you know, say a squat with a barbell or something like that, there's so many ways that your body might compensate uh, collapsing in your arches or in your knees or in your low back. And, um, if you don't, if you aren't loading that on top of a really strong core foundation, we can end up with other pain and, um, and things down the road from that. So I, again, still, and especially with the patients who have kind of the, maybe the trifecta, if you will say like EDS pods and endo, I'm, I'm still going to that same, you know, yoga based, um, approach with so sustained central stability strengthening first yeah yeah absolutely I don't know what the word would be for like obviously you have trifecta I don't know what it would be for (laughs) six but I swear it's like Elastano syndrome I see SIBO MCAS POTS what else did I say endo I can't remember there's six (laughs) I know there's six because I kind of see like there's like two triangles I try and draw it draw it for my clients and I'm like okay so here's the triangle of like MCAS EDS and POTS and then here's the triangle of IC SIBO and endo and then they like completely overlap with each other and yeah yeah, it's crazy it's crazy. crazy 
yeah, I'm just like, okay, where, where are we going to start today? What do we, yeah, <laughs> what do we yeah. want to work on today? Yeah. But it's nice that a lot of like it, the more I practice and the more I work and the more I research it, there is a lot of overlap in some of the treatments and how I can modify right, for a lot yeah. of them for, which is, which is really, you know, starting to help soothe my brain as far as my approach to to it so um, yeah. but it is it is quite the it like like I said at the very beginning gosh it's so complex and there's so many things involved in the system that we're we just can't treat it just like oh uh, this is a person who has pelvic pain or or whatever mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. but yeah I mean you're totally right like the the treatments overlap as well so at, in the beginning it can sound overwhelming but it's like okay well if we're you know, if we're calming down the nervous system for POTS regulation and to calm down MCAS reactions, that's also going to calm down pain signals with endo, right? So it's absolutely there's so much that can be that can be done to that's beneficial for for all conditions. Um, so speaking of that, what lifestyle modifications and tools can be used to manage the day to day symptoms of of POTS with endo? Yeah, so this is where I like to just get super creative with my patients and really getting into okay, what is the most aggravating part of your day? What is the a big challenge for you, and how can we make that a little bit easier? So some of my patients, um, you know, showering is really hard, and they get their POTS symptoms are the worst when, you know, it's the steam and they're standing for a long period of time and hot, and then they just have a really hard time regulating things. Um, so we've looked at, okay, getting a shower chair, you know, they make like cute bamboo ones now that don't look (laughs) like medical. (laughs) And, um, so can we do that? So you can sit for part of your shower or, um, compression stockings can be helpful for some people. Um, so getting that, if you are somebody who has to be on your feet for long periods of time, um, you know, I like to have, I like to make a, uh, I call it a flare busting plan. So if, you know, having a plan in place can be really helpful <clears throat> and you can talk that, through that through with your boss or your teachers, or, you know, if you need to get a doctor's note, but basically if you have a plan for if some sort of flare happens, what you're going to do to manage that flare, do I need to bring, you know, a tall stool to my job where I usually have to stand or something like that you've just got that outlined um just so it can be like a a really nice security blanket so that you don't have to think about it in the middle of the flare like it's already established um you've already got your people in your life already know about it so just kind of um making that plan talking about your plan with other people people that might have objections to your plan and 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 getting a doctor's note if needed for that Mm. um but yeah just kind of being creative with thinking about, okay, what is the, what is the time that my symptoms really act up and how can I, how can I modify that a little bit for myself? I don't have to push through or, you know, just suffer through, through this. I can make it easier for myself. Yeah, absolutely. What do you, out of interest, like, what do you see patients suffer with? Because I, you know, my, my heart accelerates daily I just need to go up the stairs and it's and you know it's it's going um and it's it's scary um but it doesn't I wouldn't it's not necessarily making me feel unwell but it does hinder me being like okay well now I have to stop and I have to breathe and if I go and I'm walking and I have to stop um and the dizziness um again like it's 
it's annoying, um, but it's not making me feel unwell, I guess, because I'm not having it severe as some people. I'm not like falling over or passing out. Uh, for me, it's more the breathing um, because it's just, I feel like I never get enough oxygen in. And I think think that that is having a big effect on like the fatigue um, because I'm just not really, I'm not regulating my breathing. I'm not getting air in properly. So that's just making me tired and that's what makes me feel unwell. So I'm just wondering, I'm just curious, really, what do you see that's affecting people um, daily? Is it like the temperature regulation and the heart rate regulation? Is that making them feel unwell or is it more like the fatigue? Like, I'm just, I'm just very curious. Yeah, I think it's a, com- a, a combo of the things. And I think, you know, a lot of my patients are before they get the POTS diagnosis or before they get to a cardiologist, like you mentioned, it's just going to be scary of like, what is going on? You know, we think of chest pain and we think of like, oh, I'm having a heart attack. Like, this is like not good at all. Um, where, you know, once they want, even sometimes just getting that POTS diagnosis or just even having that, that conversation of I'm like, okay, well, I think you know, I'm really thinking this sounds a lot like POTS, like let's confirm with a cardiologist. Um, that can sometimes even just settle them down a little bit too of like, okay, like I can anticipate this. I know like it's, it's okay. I know what I need to do. I just need to sit. I need to take some, you know, some deep breaths. I need to drink some more water. Um, that can be a really soothing again to the nervous system of like, okay, well, at least I know what it is and I'm not just having this crazy off the wall heart symptom that everybody says well you know oh well you're okay like you're a young you know healthy looking person mm-hmm. you're you're nothing's wrong with your heart so something um so sometimes just getting that diagnosis can be really helpful um but yeah i think that is that is the primary thing the chest pain um dizziness upon standing um the increased heart rate the rapid kind of rapid heart rate is just, is just aggravating and, and requires just mod- sitting down or taking a rest or, um, kind of, uh, breaking things up a little bit, a little bit easier. So yeah, absolutely. Um, that is what I see. Yeah. Do you, um, do you find legs up against the wall helpful? I've read on quite a lot of like, uh, kind of official, you know, charity websites and stuff that line down, um, with your legs up against the wall can help bring the blood flow back to the heart. Do you see that as a helpful tool? Um, like in the moment, like when you're having like a a, a POTS kind of I'm not, episode I think, or just like throughout the day? Yeah, I think throughout the day is what they recommend, just like to do it like three times a day for like 15 minutes or something. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, that doesn't, it wouldn't necessarily hurt, but I don't think it necessarily changes the mechanism Mm -hmm. of what's happening. Um, because, um, the pooling happens right when the blood vessels don't respond and the heart, like the cardiovascular system doesn't respond quickly to the change in either activity or positioning, Um, and so, you know, in the moment when you're okay, like my heart rate is really high, like I can't get it to calm down, laying down, um, getting your legs up the wall, I think is a great strategy, but as far as something to do just to kind of like to change your symptoms over the long term, I don't, I don't know. I don't know how, where the evidence, you know, would support that as far as like the mechanism of the pathology or the pathophysiology. Yeah. I think I got. Yeah, definitely. I think the impression I got was that it was more like a, just a 
a management tool rather than like it's gonna do anything long term sure yeah like a symptom manager like if you're like whoa I just don't feel well that is that is definitely a modification I I def I recommend it's like okay you're gonna sit down or if it's possible you're gonna lay down you know oftentimes my patients will be at school or work and laying down isn't an option mm. at the time but um but sitting down, getting as, as, as horizontal and then legs up the wall, definitely like a bonus <clears throat> too. Okay. As awesome. far as the, in the symptom management. Um, yeah. Okay. So this has been so helpful. I feel like there are loads of very practical tips. I'm wondering where would, just as we wrap up, is there somewhere that you would recommend listeners start? Would it be like looking at what's bothering them the most or is there actually something that you're like no like the aerobic exercise like is a good place to start for everyone like you know where can people yeah. begin mm -hmm. really that aerobic exercise is going to be the number one thing that is is recommended and you know that a lot of the cardiologists I work with um are recommending the same thing that if as soon as you can start to figure out a plan for getting that in, implemented into your life, the better. So whether that is, like you said, like a yoga video that kind of gets your heart rate up or a walk, um, you know, recumbent biking, if you can tolerate walking, great. If, if you can't tolerate a walk, like you just get out there and you're like, this is not going well, then, you know, recumbent biking or swimming and even, you know, swimming, if swimming's hard, getting a kickboard or some sort of flotation device to make swimming less, um, less difficult and staying within that RPE range that you can sustain for 10, 15, 20 minutes, um, is going to be the, the best place to start. Um, so yeah, that's what, that's what I would recommend people start to think about first is like, okay, how can I, how can I get that? You know, obviously the water, you know, water intake and hydration is important, but that, that seems to be really easy for people to start to like, okay, I'm going to do this and drink more water. I'm going to figure out an electrolyte solution. The problem solving and planning of getting an aerobic exercise plan in place seems to be a more challenging place. Um, and something mm. that, that would be really beneficial to start thinking about. Okay, perfect. Thank you so much. And we'll put the links to that. Um, I can't remember what the name was that you mentioned, the Children's Hospital. We'll put that in the in the show notes with the exercise program for POTS. Um, so where can people find you, Stephanie, if they want to get in touch? Yeah, so I'm just uh, starting a little a uh, baby kind of business for my health coaching stuff. So I have um, my email for that would just be info at synchronizedhealth.org or you can go to the website it's synchronizedhealth.org and you can contact me there. Um, and that's just starting to get some resources up. It's a super, a super new project, so it doesn't have a ton on it quite yet, but you can definitely reach out to me that way. Okay. Amazing. And are you on Instagram? Yeah, I am. So I'm at, um, it's just at synchronized health as well. Okay. Perfect. Um, it's the Instagram link. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on. This has been really, really interesting. I think there's loads of practical tools that people can get started with. Um, and I'm going to get go away and work on getting up to 20 minutes um, in one awesome. go. So thank you for that tip. It's been great having you on. 
Yeah, thank you so much, Jessica. It's such a pleasure being here. I really appreciate all the work that you've been doing. So, oh, no, you too. I feel like we have to like, <laughs> yeah, shine the torch on these issues and this kind of strange like. I don't know what the word is again, like all of these multiple conditions in one. Um, yeah, we'll name it someday. Like the the six sisters or whatever it is. Right. Yeah, exactly. Thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. So that's it. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to find out more about what I do or read more on endometriosis and living well with it, um, you can head to my Instagram page, which is this underscore endolife. Um, you can head to my website, which is www.thisendolife.com. And you can also get um, a free guide to managing endometriosis naturally on my website. Um, I've put the link in my show notes. It's a beginner's guide to getting started and all of the areas that I Um, have worked on to help reduce my endometriosis symptoms and pain and live well with endometriosis as always if you like this show please rate review and or subscribe really truly does help others to hear the podcast and hopefully will help them to live better with endometriosis this episode was produced by the pod farm whether you're an established podcaster or just getting started visit thepodfarm.com to see how they can help you go from an idea to a finished show that's ready to be heard by the world